Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. David Jones, welcome to the Center of the Universe, man. Thanks for doing this. Sure thing. Good to see you, Paul. It's great to see you. I think it's been 35 years since we've physically <laughs> seen each other. And of course, it's virtual. You're in Atlanta and I'm in uh, Richmond. Right. But uh, this podcast has allowed me to connect to people that I hadn't seen in, in a, a really long time. And you're certainly one of them. I think the last time we saw each other might have been 87. You're, you're probably right. You're probably right. It doesn't seem that long ago, but you're probably right. And so thanks for or reaching out and asking me. Yeah, I, I d- have described you to anybody that uh, your name has come up a handful of times over the last 35 years. I'm like, oh, yeah, David's the nicest guy I know. That will, <laughs> that will never change. There will never be anybody nicer than David. And I, I, I think that's probably still true, right? You're still a nice guy. I, I, I think so, but others may differ. But anyway, that's okay. <laughs> uh, uh, all right, so we, we met... Uh, I guess we were both in ninth grade. That's right. That's right. The, the year. That's when I started St. Christopher's in ninth grade. I moved from a other uh, middle school to to St. Christopher's, and yeah, you and I were in the same class of what sixty eight. <laughs> yeah, there were, uh, the two of us plus sixty eight. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So wait a minute. Did you move to Richmond at that time, or were you already in Richmond? You just moved schools. No, I was born and raised in Richmond. Okay. So just moved, just switched schools at the, you know that for high school. Were you private school before St. Christopher's or public? Yeah, it was a school called All Saints. Uh, okay. So that's where, yeah, I went to a grade school and middle school. And then switching, uh, you needed to stay with the Saint theme, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that was the driver. Yeah. <laughs> so you haven't been, you haven't lived in Richmond in a while. No, it's been, so last time I lived in Richmond was when I, after I graduated from medical school in 96. Okay, we'll we'll come back to that a little bit. So, what part of town did you grow up in? Uh, so, we grew up originally in like the north side of Richmond, and then most of my life in my when I was in third grade, moved to Midlothian. Okay, and that's where the north side to south side. What's that? North, north, north side to south side. Right. Yeah. Well, and uh, was it near Ginner Park? It was. It was yeah. very close to Ginner Park. Yeah, it was okay. like Brooklyn yeah. Park. That's a, cool, Park. Yeah. that's a cool part of town. Yeah, very nice. So we, we were literally a. Half a mile from the uh, the diamond was called in. So, oh wow! So you were like super true north side. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Wait a minute, let's narrow this this in a little bit. <laughs> Half a mile north of the diamond was uh, Kitchen sixty four there when we were younger. Don't think so. Well, no, you're only you're only in second or third grade with me. Your memories are a little in that far. area around off the boulevard. Like it was like. Uh, yeah, down that part of the boulevard where there's a lot of stuff now, there's very little besides like a, a Bill's barbecue. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That, I love that Bill's barbecue. Oh, yeah. It was good stuff. Yeah. But with, it was uh, very sad when Bill's barbecue shut down, I guess, like 10, 15 years ago here. Uh, yeah. So it was painful. All right. So, Southside, uh, Chesterfield, there weren't a lot of kids going to St. Christopher's uh, from Hanover County or Chesterfield County. It was a lot of Henrico and, and, city of Richmond kids. Right, right, right. Like, I, I think they intentionally recruited people like you and me to to add some diversity because literally most of those kids were like grew up two miles from the school. Right. It was the West End sort of circuit, if you will, around CCV and not too far from there. Yeah, it was a very, very condensed uh, as far as the, where the class base lived. All right. Well, so I think of you as a nice guy. I also think of you as a tennis player. <laughs> yes. And 
Uh, you, what's, you don't have to answer this, but I remember you being highly seated on our team. So yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, I think as high as three at one point, the team was exceptional, you know, and not thanks to me. Unbelievable. I mean, they're really, really exceptional uh, teammates. So that's, I mean, so, I mean, so it gives you, I don't know. I appreciate your, your, your high recollection of my skills, but yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I used to watch that. I was captain my senior year, though. That's really cool. I, I remember knowing that the tennis team was really, really good. The whole time we were there, it was exceptional to use your term. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think we're, it's probably, we could maybe find an even stronger word to describe how talented that team was. And I would go watch you guys practice. You guys are so good. I'm like, I don't know how you're hitting the ball like that. Because I was a novice tennis player. I'd been on tennis courts a few times in my life. But I'm like, I don't know how you hit a second serve that hard. I don't know how you do that with your backhand. I Like, I didn't understand any of it. Wow. Well, that's nice to hear. That's nice to hear. We, we, I, I, it was a great team. I can't say. I, I don't know what else to say about it. It's, uh, it's funny. You sound like my my husband. He's like, when we, we don't play tennis often, but we do. He's like, how in the world do you make a ball move in that direction like that? So anyway, but uh it was fun. I mean, really, really a lot of fun. Well, so you get that good uh, one. There's probably a natural ability that is innate to you, but there's also this notion of playing a lot. I imagine you played a ton when you when you were younger. So ironically, I didn't really pick up tennis until middle school, I think. Huh. It started um, and I, I literally started hitting. We had a garage, um, a four car garage, and. And the, the cars went in the garage. There was a like a, a 15 foot wide piece of brick wall. That was a part of the house. I used to go down there and just hit the balls against the wall for hours on end. And then, and that's how I started. And then it started. Then it started playing at um, on the north when I was we lived on the actually we lived on the north side. Started playing a little bit over there on some teams and so. But it kind of it was it was I was relatively later. I mean, much later than most uh, starting and. Um, uh, just kind of, uh, you know, I guess it was a combination of enjoying the game and just serendipity of being able to pick up the skill pretty, pretty quickly. So, and I think anyway, so that's, yeah, it was weird how late I picked it up. So, well, I mean, that, that shocks me a little bit because your teammates uh, and look, I, I, I went there in eighth grade. You, you went there a year later in ninth grade. Mm-hmm. I remember the teams when I was in eighth grade, I remember the teams uh, all, all through high school and, I mean, the, your teammates were playing from a very young age, and they played at, at uh, clubs like CCV. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 a fact. That's why I go back to saying how exceptional they 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 are they, as tennis players. Yeah. So, so so what was it about tennis that was uh, interesting or worth spending so much time doing for you? At least starting in middle school, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, mean, I think some of it was just—I probably started with watching it and enjoying watching it on television, and then, um, you know, I, I just enjoyed the more I kind of even practiced, the more I enjoyed it. And it, there's something interesting about the sport in and of itself. Any tennis player would say it's it's different than pretty much any other sport because most others, you know, you're the only one on the court, and um, you have to problem solve in the moment, and you kind of have to, you know, and and it's. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's something about that that is, and maybe there's a competitiveness that adds to it as well. But I think it's, uh, I don't, it's something exciting about it, just very fascinating. And so I, I think it's, it's anyway. I just think it's very um, interesting to me, all aspects of it. So 
Yeah, I mean, you, you and I are of an age where right, I'm sure you remember watching Borg and McEnroe go go at it, or Jimmy oh, Connors, and uh, and later on Lindell and those guys. I mean, I, I that was that was fascinating TV. Yeah, I mean, if you just loved physical competition, that right. was some of the best TV going. Exactly, exactly. That's a great point. You're right. Yeah, I, I pulled for Borg every time. I, I mean, <laughs> McEnroe was American, but he was such a uh, he was such a jack jackaroot, as I would say. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one way to nice way to put it. I'm with you. I was a huge Borg fan. I mean, yeah. And he won. He won Wimbledon every time. It, it seems like when we were kids. I he think won, he won six times. But he won, it, he won five in a row, actually. Yeah. Yeah, five in a row, and I think a total of six. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could have that wrong. All right. So <laughs> I played a bunch of team sports. Yeah. I think individual endeavors like tennis freaked me out. Yeah. I, I, I liked kind of hiding with my teammates a little bit, and I, it's hard for me to admit that. Uh, it was it was one of my weaknesses as a, as a kid and, and maybe even to, to this day. I really enjoy the, the positive aspects of team sports, but I also enjoyed a not-so-positive thing of hiding. You can't hide in tennis. No, no, and it's – yeah, you no, you can't. You know, good. I mean, you. It's great when you're playing well. That's great. When you're not playing well, or you're losing badly. It's it's not it's not pretty. <laughs> Have you ever gotten really really mad playing tennis? So I did when I was younger. It's funny you say that because I think it was a part of you mentioned Macro Borg. I think that was Macro was probably the bad boy. If you know, and a lot of outbursts. And I think at a young age you probably emulate what you see. And I think at early age I did, and then. Once I went through a couple of rackets and my parents said, you know, <laughs> I get another one. So I was like, okay, I gotta, you know, this not, just wasn't practical at minimum. It just wasn't good sportsmanship general in general. <laughs> so reacting with negative emotion like that, I mean, kids do that. It's not, mm-hmm. not the end of the world. It's funny when somebody over the age of, I don't know, 22, 25 does that. Right. Yeah. All right. So uh, did you play other sports? So, you know, St. Chris, we, you know, we, every, every, uh, um, trimester we had required you know athletics and so the, I, I, I mean, temporarily did cross country that was very short-lived for obvious reasons i think i played basketball a little bit a couple years i did indoor track one season way too cold uh even indoors uh and then um so those are the others um you know I, you know team sports i played i would say or just other sports i played in general but um you know they were they were they were things to do for a requirement versus what I really enjoyed doing. I like basketball, actually. You, know, you were much better basketball than I was. I appreciate you saying that. Uh, I remember you being on the, on the JV team. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, that was that was a fun team. We had a good time. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Yeah, I don't know. Were we any good? I don't remember. I wasn't. You, I mean, you were. Well, I, I mean, as a team. Ah. Uh, I, I think we had periods where we were good. You know, it was always us in collegiate and maybe another school kind of vibe for the you know, um, prep league title. But I think we we're I think we we're periods of being competitive and decent. Yeah, I, it's funny you bring up collegiate. I the, the sports I played, we seem to lose to collegiate almost all the time. <laughs> did, did we crush them in tennis? I hope we did. We were right, very good. proud of that. Yes, exactly. I think you guys crushed everybody in tennis, right? Uh, so. I would say yes. I mean, when we won the prep league title, like, I mean, probably 15 straight years, I think, something like that. I mean, that's not an exaggeration. So it was just pretty crazy. So, and I think they're still good. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, it's un- unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, that was a fun basketball team. Nobody came to the games, though. <laughs> the game basketball is not where it's at. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, besides tennis and uh, 
going to school and, and occasionally doing what your parents asked you to do, what, how did you spend your time? Did you have hobbies or interests when you were younger? Uh, question. What should I do? I mean, by the way, it's an unfair question because I didn't, I, I don't have an answer to this question. So, I mean, between, I mean, I guess tennis was my hobby, I guess, if anything else. I mean, I did stuff, like you said, outside of what your parents expect you to do, if you don't want to do it, you know, or, you know, I have five siblings. So we probably did a lot of things together. Just there are the, five of you. You did uh, six of us total. So I, you know, I'm sorry, you five siblings make six total. Holy yeah. cow. What's the, what's the breakdown? What's one through six? So it's, you mean male, their names or gender, whatever. Names, names and, and gender. Well, names is probably good. Lisa, Mark, Lori, Michael, me, and Lydia. So, so it's three, three and three. Three and three, exactly. Yep. I'm, nice. yeah, I'm the youngest male. Take it for what it's worth. So, so you, you, when you looked up at number four, it was a, an older brother. Right. And you had a younger sister. Correct. And you guys were close enough in age where it was pretty cool? Yeah. So my brother was four years older than me, and my younger sister is three years younger than me. Okay. Yeah. Those are good, good uh, gaps in age. Yeah, exactly. Did, did it feel like you had like the older two? Did it feel like they were aunts and uncles kind of thing? Or did it feel more like siblings? So it felt like siblings. And ironically, my oldest sister, the oldest of all of us, and I were probably the closest younger because she was 10 years, she's 10 years older than I. So when I was coming up as a you know toddler, she was like an adolescent. So I was, she was kind of like my babysitter, if you will. So we just hung out and did whatever together. It was really funny that I think the age dynamic was just enough that it was kind of like, we hung out a lot but until I got sort of a little bit older. She went off to to college, so but hung, hung out a lot because she was uh, effectively watching you, or hung out a lot also because uh, you guys had similar personalities. It was probably a little bit of the more of the latter. We have different personalities in some ways, but, but I think it was more the latter. And I think it was kind of she was an age where she wanted someone you know to kind of hang out with her, and I was at an age where I'm like, oh sure, you know, whatever, <laughs> everything she wanted to do. I'm like that sounds like fun, you know. And so I was just like the yes guy, you know, the yes sibling, and she she loved it. So uh, are so. all of your siblings still around? So no. So my 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 old my brother, just four years older than me, um, he passed away. Actually, he passed away when when I was uh, at St. Christopher's. Actually, when I was fourteen. Oh, that's rough. That's awful. Yeah. yeah. So, yep. So, but no. But he's he passed away. The others are still around. Yeah. Uh, are the others in on the East Coast? Yeah, so two siblings are in Richmond still, and one's in uh, Raleigh, one's in now Charlottesville. Okay, so you guys are basically in the southeast. Yep, exactly. Along the east coast. Exactly. You guys get together a lot? Uh, I mean, you know, let's say put COVID aside, I would say yes. I would say probably like uh, three, three to four times a year or so between my mom's birthday or Easter, you know, of course the holidays things like that. So I, I think some with somewhat regularity, given the size of our family. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. It, yeah, it's yeah. hard, especially for, with that many kids, that many siblings. Yeah. You get the siblings by itself. Then they got, you know, their spouses and kids and grandkids and all that stuff. But it's, yeah, we, I think we see each other with probably more regularity than a, a good, good frequency given the, the size. And that, that good frequency, I think I, I, I imagine means that you guys, generally get along like the grandkids and the spouses, et cetera. We do. I mean, we really do. And it's very low, low drama, very little drama. I think we very, most we pretty much all have similar personalities and demeanor and uh, demeanor. Um, and, uh, and we talk, it's funny because we talk about a variety of things and, and it's actually very little medicine in our family. I say that because my dad was a physician. I'm a physician. My, 
older brother's physician, my younger sister's physician, their spouses. And so it's a lot of physicians in the family, even uncles on my mom's side. So, but the good thing is we really, we don't talk much about medicine in general, which is nice. We just talk about just life, I guess. Yeah. You, you've had plenty of that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So uh, when did you know you wanted to be a doctor? So I do at a young age. I, I, I remember vividly in sixth grade, I think it was like a class, the teacher was asking people what they would do for a career or something like that. I just remember it was just like certain I would be a doctor. Like that was it. And I, you know, I think in part, large part it was because of my dad. And I think I kind of grew up just thinking that's the only, not the only thing to do, but it was like <laughs> the best thing to do. And it, it really didn't give it a second thought. I was like, oh, let's be a doctor. You know, and that, I knew since a very, very young age. When did you get really serious about it? I think I was always serious about it. I guess I think the time it really became a kind of inflection point of decision making was in college. And so I was a um, psychology major. And of course, there's pre-med requirements, but I got to organic chemistry. And that was that was tougher than any medical class I've had. And then most doctors will tell you like that was brutal. And so there was a point in time where I took a semester without any med school classes at all or pre-med class because I was like, all right, do I really want to do this or am I cut out for this? That kind of stuff. And then, but then I realized as much as I liked what I was doing, it was nothing like science and medicine. I was like, all right, you know, well, you know, just got to tough it out and, you know, deal with it. You know, it was just kind of a, a period of academic adversity that I hadn't really experienced. It, you know, it was like, whoa, you know, it kind of jolts you. But I think that's the kind of stuff that sort of also refocused you, at least for me. And so, um, so if there's a point of more seriousness, that was probably <laughs> probably it. Yeah. 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 What year in uh, college did you take organic? That was yeah. sophomore year. Sophomore, pretty much sophomore year, I think. Yeah. I, I may have mentioned to you this uh, or mentioned this to you when we spoke uh, a few weeks ago, but I plan on being a pediatrician as well mm-hmm. and from a fairly young age. And I, I got to organic chemistry and looking back, I was not mature enough at that point to like really dive in and, and go through the hard stuff. And so when it got, got hard, you had this fight or flight uh, yeah. response to everything in life just about. And I, I flew away from organic chemistry as fast as I could. I, I, I stu- stuck in uh, as long as I could until I knew I had to withdraw. And so yeah. I, I withdrew from the class. And left. <laughs> and I'm like, I guess I'm not going to be a doctor anytime soon. Got it. Got it. Yeah. It, it, I, I learned that you really ha- had to hunker down and really get serious about it. I just was not in a place. I wasn't mature enough at that, that time, but you, you were. I, 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 I like to think so. I guess I, it was a point where I wasn't sure, but yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I imagine most people that have become uh, medical doctors uh, have some self doubt along the way. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I think it's universal pretty much. Yeah. So. I imagine there there are a handful of people that are just so wickedly smart that they don't sweat anything. But yeah, I've never met them. I think neither have I. You know, you know. I think even people who won't admit it, you can. I, I think everybody has those moments. You're you're a, a very nice guy, as I mentioned at the top. Uh, and so, because you're so nice, I'm not going to say anything negative about the school you went to. <laughs> Nor- normally, I would. Uh, but why did you uh, go to Duke? So. I'll say we, we, we both, we, I think in some ways we relish the hate, if you will. I'm not saying you're hating, but so it's okay. It's okay. We have thick skin. And so it, it's all good. It's all good. And, and uh, anyway, so your question again, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Why did you choose Dick? Um, it was a combination of things. Obviously the academic 
uh, the environment was great, but you know, you're 18, that's not necessarily top of mind, you know, as we would be when you're mature. My older brother went to Duke for undergrad, so that was a good firsthand uh, awareness of the experience and, and all of that. And uh, huge basketball fan, you know, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you can't deny that that's a huge draw for this school. Who knows that acceptance requirement, but um, it, it was a combination of my, my brother's experience just and just visiting the school and, and loving the environment. And um, it just felt like it felt like a place I wanted to, to be or you know, attend school and learn. And, and I, was, I was extremely fortunate to be accepted because I think most people, uh, my classmates would agree, you know, if you were applying again this time, <laughs> if you had the scores you had then, given the competition now, you, you, you wouldn't be given an interview. So very fortunate to uh, to even be accepted and, and, and graduate. Yeah. It's, it's an exceptional school. It's very hard to get into. I, I applied to five schools. I got into four of them. The one I wanted to go to was Duke, and I did not get in. Um, and so that's a little bit of where the hater thing comes from. I went to a a school that would like to think that we are uh, competitive in basketball. Most years we are not competitive with Duke in basketball. Uh, and, and Duke's got this, um, and I didn't realize this until much later, Duke has a very northeast part of the U.S. Uh, thing going on. Did you know that when you decided to go there? I know. I realized it very quickly my freshman year. I mean, it is a significant New York, New Jersey, northeast presence. I mean, significant, yeah. Yeah, I think my mom told me after I didn't get in that we're distantly related to the founders of Duke. I'm like, maybe I could have used that, Mom. Did you want to tell me before they denied me? Uh, Perfect timing, Mom. Thanks for letting me know now. All right. All right. So the Cameron Crazies were a thing when you went there, right? Oh, yeah. Yo, so yeah. were you ever a Cameron Crazy? I was. Yeah, I camped out in the middle of February. It's cold, even in Durham in February. So we had we camped out. Um it did, it, it, I don't I paint my face maybe once. I painted my face. Uh, it was, it was where there's a few games where I lost my voice from screaming so much. And see, make it even better. My roommate for two years was actually the actual Blue Devil mascot. Oh, really? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you had so, to be a crazy then. Today, yeah. So he got to be the mascot. So that just made the camera craziness over the top. Did that give you any special access or anything like that? Rooming with the it, it made it easier to get into some games, either you know, or you didn't have to stand in line as long. Put it that way, and uh, so it didn't hurt from that perspective either. So. so you guys played UNC every year you're in school, right? I mean, they've they've been playing uh, home and away games. I mean, they play twice a year every year forever, right? Twice a year every year, and always it, the last game of the regular season is that's the game for each school, and it, it just alternates the location. So did you go to all four UNC games at Duke? Oh, the games at – oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, how, what was the longest you had to uh, camp out to get in a UNC game? Well, hold on. Let's back up. Who who were the star players for Duke back then? Oh, um, Rick Fox. Oh, for Duke. That's no, was Carolina. Oh, sorry. Yeah. But, so when I was there, um, um, I graduated in 91, and that's the year they won the championship for the first time. So it was Christian Leitner, Grand Hill – um were the two big star players bobby hurley um and i feel badly not remembering the other ones but those are the biggest biggest names at the time uh so it was good it was good. so that helped not only obviously for the success of the team but also being the roommate of the blue devil you got to meet the you know meet the players and get to know them as well but i mean those those are the those are the big 
Olympic stars or big names at the at the time. I mean, the, the, they're probably no bigger names in Duke's history. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was like it was a great great time to be there for sure. So, Were you Leitner's year? No, so he was two or three years behind me. So Grant Hill, I think, was ninety. Was a freshman. I was a senior. And Leitner was maybe a year ahead of that. So they were like two, two, three years behind me. Uh, what an awesome time to be there, though. Holy it cow. Amazing. It was amazing. So what, I remember, Go ahead. Sorry. So actually, the, the, the year of the championship, it was the, the, the championship was in Indianapolis. And the year before, Duke had gotten blown up by UNLV by 30 points. And then, oh, I remember. <laughs> you enjoyed that. And then we get back to the Final Four, and it was UNLV, Duke, Kentucky, and Kansas, I believe. Anyway. And Duke beat UNLV in the semifinals. And we actually we got tickets and went to that game in Indianapolis. They were at that, that, that time you could scalp tickets and you and you could get them dirt cheap. Anyway, after we won the semifinal game, they beat UNLV. We're like, oh my God, they actually win the championship this year. So we scalped the tickets, hightailed it back to Durham to watch the the, the championship at, at home. And unfortunately, it was great that we won the game. That UNLV team was undefeated going into that semifinal. Oh, game. yeah. It was insane. They were just it was insane. Yeah. I, I I didn't gamble back then, I, and I have never really gambled, uh, at least not on sporting events. And <laughs> I think the the spread was like thirteen or fourteen points minimum. Minimum. Yeah, yeah I think I think the world thought that they would win by twenty plus for sure, for sure. Yeah, and they kind of blew Duke out the year prior, right? They did. I mean, by yeah. thirty, it was ugly. <laughs> that was the championship game. It was. It was. Wait a minute. So who did Duke beat in the championship the next year? Kansas. Kansas. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's pretty rare air. Those four teams in the final four, and it kind of set the tone for the next, I, I don't know, 30 years, except for UNLV. UNLV has kind of fallen out, but uh, yeah. the other three have been outstanding programs. Yeah. 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 Well, so you, I imagine you still follow Duke basketball. Uh, very closely. Actually, we, you know, coach K retired this past year, this past season. So, but the, my friend, who's the roommate, the, the, the Blue Devil, rather, and another good friend from Duke, who lived, they both live in California. Anyway, long story short, we all decided to get tickets to a, a Cameron game in January of this year, which was one of the last games. And it was just put to say it was a good investment, put it that way, to get the tickets. And so, but it was such a fun time. It was worth going back and seeing one of his last games. And so, still a true diehard fan, no matter what. So. I, I, yeah, I think in order to uh, be able to afford the, a final game ticket, that last game in, in Durham, you had to be a, a medical doctor plus be famous on TV kind of thing. So we, we, we debated for a while. We're like, are you sure we want to? <laughs> you know. Yeah, I'm not going to ask you how much that those January tickets were. I, I don't even want to admit to it. So no, no. It, it could have been cheap. <laughs> that, well, uh, yeah, and Duke's – is Duke known for any other sports? Lacrosse, good and yeah. bad with the championship, but also the scandals. Uh, I think their soccer teams have been good. The tennis team is good, has been good over the years. And lacrosse, I mean, that's the lacrosse already. Um, yeah. I think those are the main ones I can think of. So you were there around the time that Shashevsky, I'm trying to think, like 85, 86, when you and I were still in high school. I think if Shashevsky had had bad teams those two seasons, he might not have been there after 80, 86. I think there's, I know there was a period of time where, you know, his, his results, if you will, were kind of ebb and flow and the, the powers that be were probably questioning, you know, 
new direction or not. And then luckily they made the right decision. Yeah, I, I think that you, a lot of people will point to the, the team that started when you were there, the Leitners and, and Hills of the world. Um, and, and you mentioned Hurley. I should mention Hurley as well because he was a big part of those teams. But the, there was a team in the mid-'80s, Dawkins, Amaker, mm -hmm. Allery, yep. Mahar, Billis. I'm yep. probably forgetting a couple of names. Uh, they they did very, very well, and, and it was kind of out of nowhere. Yep. Uh, and so I think without that team, Shashevsky doesn't stay at Duke. That's I completely agree. Yeah, that was actually I mean those people or that those teams were probably laid the foundation to kind of weather whatever you know up and down seasons that came, that that lasted and then probably led to getting the, the sort of Grant Hills and all that later on. Yeah, because Grant Hill uh, he had to be recruited by everybody. There's no way he wasn't. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, his dad played for the Dallas Cowboys. He was a obviously a very good athlete. Uh, he had the kind of body for a basketball player. Like he was right. meant to play basketball. Right. Uh, all right. So the fact that coach K has sustained it so long is, is really part of uh, his magic. I think it's, it's hard to be on top for as long as he was. One of the ways he maintained it though. And I, I don't remember exactly when the, when he made this shift, but he started doing one and dunce. And I, I was shocked at the time. I would love to get your perspective on that. So that's a great point. Actually, so it's twofold. I remember you, when you say that, because I remember as you were talking about Grant Hill, as he was one of the last, if you will, players who played all four years. And so it was shortly after that, because I never forget, it was Lul Dang was the first Duke player I remember who went into the draft after a sophomore year. I mean, the whole school was just like, just stunned. Like, you just don't do that, right? But then also over the years, we've talked about to be successful as a coach, K, you, I mean, you, I mean, you, you can hate the game, but you got to evolve with it, right? You can, at a point in time, you see where the winds are changing, and that's just, I think his brilliance to adapt to the way the the game was going, as far as getting the biggest talent and being successful and being remaining competitive over a long period of time. And so, I think that's a great point. It's it was it's a it's a very different paradigm you didn't expect from someone like him, but it shows. You know, times change and you got to evolve with it. Yeah, you adapt and survive kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, and look, he he, he may have had a couple of minor lulls in his time at Duke at, after the national championship, but they didn't last very long. Right, right. I, I, I would love to be in a room with Coach K when he's talking to a 17-year-old kid who's, who's a five-star kind of kid right. who clearly he wants at Duke. Right. I would love to hear what Coach K says. Man, that would be a fascinating conversation. I mean, I mean, just all around, just see what he would say. But it's also, it reminds me, you think about when you're at that age as an 18-year-old, like, talk about head deer in the headlights. I mean, what do you say back to him, right? Or how do you, how do you, like, how do you interact with somebody like that at all? But it's, yeah, it's a, I, I, that would be a fascinating conversation to hear. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm, not very interested in what the 17 or 18 year olds are saying because <laughs> they're probably not being very productive in the conversation. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. No, but. All right. So you you uh, majored in what, Dick? Uh, psychology. Are you, so you finished with a psychology degree. I did. I got a BS in psychology. Yeah. I would have expected you to major in a science, like like a like a hard, I, I, not to imply that psychology is easy, but something more sciencey. I guess. I mean, I mean, the vast majority of, of people going to med school do. You're right. I mean, it's probably very. It seems more. It seems more natural because you're already focused on the science in general, and also 
there's pre-med requirements and your let's say your science major. I mean, there's so much overlap. It just seems more practical and you know more straightforward. But I did, I mean, I had an interest in psychology and strangely statistics. Hmm. <laughs> but it, it just seemed like it was kind of the best of both, both worlds. Remember that point of time where I said, I don't know if I want to do med school or not, but I, I did some psychology courses then. And I was able to kind of split the difference and kind of do both, I guess, and sort of align the Bachelor of Science degree with some of the, you know, some credits there from the, from the, um, I guess, pre-med classes. And so it kind of was like a, a hybrid, if you will, but I find it interesting. And, and I like the idea of having education that was beyond, you know, beyond organic chemistry or, you know, a lab or things like that. So. Yeah, it gives you some breadth for sure. Exactly. And, and breadth in a lot of cases matters more than depth. Yeah, exactly. All right. So, uh, organic chemistry, you're on the record. That, that was the hardest. <laughs> yes. Or was that just the, was that just the turning point when you knew you were committed? It was both. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was your easiest med, pre-med class? You don't remember those, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Not in the least. Not, uh, maybe biology, if you had to answer something, I, I, but, okay. but you just don't remember those, right? All right. So you, you, you're, you're senior, you're looking to go to med school. You're feeling pretty confident you're going to go to med school at that point, I imagine. Uh, as confident as you can. Yeah, exactly. Well, what would lead you to not being so confident in your senior year? I mean, it's, it's just a matter of the competitiveness, you know, of, you know, application process, the MCAT scores, all that stuff. I guess in hindsight, you know, I, I guess they, the idea is, you know, I was confident, just more hesitant. I didn't want to seem like I was overly confident, you know, just, just acknowledging the competitiveness is there, you know, and, but I, I guess I did have, I, th I think I had less um, trepidation of if I would get into med school at that point. I think I'd already hunkered down. I was already had the whatever focus on it. It was just a matter of, it was not just, it was a matter of where I think with, let's say, strong optimism of getting accepted, which is fortunate I did. So. What was your uh, your first choice? MCV. Okay, really? Mm -hmm. Why MCV? That, that I'm curious about that. Uh, it was, it was, in part, it was probably at home, you know, I mean, but it was also, it's ironic and it's not, I don't think it's related, but it's more coincidental. My brother went to MCV as well for, for med school. And so I think it was a familiarity there. Um, and, you know, it didn't hurt having in-state tuition. <laughs> All those types yeah. of, I mean, it's kind of practical purposes. And so, it's funny because I can't remember where I applied outside of UVA. I know I did, but I don't remember. I don't remember where else. Maybe Howard University and a few, I'm sure a few others. I'm sure I didn't apply just to three med schools. That would be just ridiculous. But anyway, so that's all I remember. Yeah. Well, MCV uh, back then had a fantastic reputation, still does to this day. Right. Of course, it doesn't go by the name MCV anymore. They, right. they lost that at some point, what, 15, 20 years ago? Right. Yeah. That's all um, Virginia Commonwealth. Do you know the story why they uh, went away from MCV? I don't. I don't. I don't, I don't know. the. I, I think there were two events that happened where um, they were fairly well-known, like CNN was covering it. In one case, I think ESPN was covering because there was a record uh, NASCAR race. And in both occasions, they referred to uh, MCV as UVA's medical school. Oh, really? And the president... It was, I don't remember the president's name, but it was the same president for both events. And the second time it happened, he said, That's it. I, yeah. You're not in TV anymore. We are going to be VCU. I, no. that, that is not happening again. 
I could see that absolutely. You see my reaction when you said that. I was like, whoa. Yeah. Once, that's a big deal. Having twice, ain't having it again. I, mean, I think he was pretty mad the first time and he stayed mad. And uh, the second time it happened, he's like, I can't take this anymore. I bet. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. And they still have a fantastic reputation, right? I, I, I don't follow VCU medicine, but I imagine it's still a, a, a pretty uh, proud program. Absolutely is. And so I'm happy to say my younger sister, she's chief chair of dermatology at, at VCU. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh wow. Yeah. Chief dermatologist. That that's uh, something I've never contemplated in my life. <laughs> doing that. That's really cool. Uh, all right. So tell me about med school. What was what was the hardest year? First, second, or third? First year. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to remember. I I would say maybe second year. Um, in this, you know, they're all hard in different ways. It was because the first year is like what's called how the body and organs should work, right? You understand all the details, how it optimally works. And then second year, generally like pathophysiology, all the disease states, how it breaks down, how it causes disease and what happens and et cetera, et cetera, which is actually a little more complicated. And then you're sort of getting into getting prepared for your boards as well, which are coming up. So I think the second year was a little more, you had more under your belt, which is good, but I think you had a little more complexities both in, in the courses and ahead to plan for, I think. And then, so I, so I think second year is probably the hardest if I had to choose one uh, from the academic perspective. The way it's broken down, at least it was then, first year was didactic, you know, in the classroom largely and, and things like that. And then the third and fourth were your rotations in the hospital. And that was a whole different dynamic you know, with patients and rounding and all that stuff. So um, some people like that a lot more, understandably, uh, but I thought, I thought the second second year was the most challenging. And the reason I, I'm laughing as I'm saying that is, you know, I'm bald, right? So the the, the time I, I, I assumed you were shaving your head, David. I, didn't I know did that. actually, and there's a story there with like second year med school. So the last exam of second year med school was allergy and immunology exam, and I lit, my roommate was also one of my classmates, and we were at a point where after the end of the second year, you just you're tired from studying, you're punchy, whatever, right? And I and I just like I can't study anymore. And somehow he's kind of guy. He's like he just likes to tell jokes and put you like dare you to do stuff. Right? I'm the opposite, right? And it's like, all right, why don't you just shave your head? I don't know how it came about. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. And he's like, you're lying, and I did. Yeah, I let him shave my head because so, we were just like tired and did nothing to do besides that. And so, funny, and you 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 had enough of that, yeah. I had enough of that. And so then I shaved my head. I'm like, what in the world did I do? So I show up to class the next day at the exam. I put a hat on, right? So I was like. And in the middle of the exam, you know, I was just like focused on it. I took my head off to like scratch my head. So I hear this person behind me go, oh, what, like, what did you do? And the class looks around at me. I'm like, oh, and I realized what I, you know, anyway, I was a distraction unnecessarily. But anyway, but that's the first time I shaved my head and I never stopped after that because, you know, it's more practical and it itch too much to let it grow out again. And so ever since that day, that's why I started shaving my head. So you've had a, that look since med school. Since the middle of med school, exactly. Since nineteen wow. Yep. Uh, were you receding back then? You weren't receding back then, were you? Not that I a little bit, I mean, but nothing I cared about. So it was yeah. it was literally something just spontaneous and funny at the time. But anyway. That's a great story. I like that. <laughs> and you've and you've maintained that look for a long a really long time. Absolutely, absolutely. So hey, I I got ahead of the receding hairline curve. So yeah, I mean my uh, my hat is uh, the primary purpose is to cover up my severely receding hairline. 
So you, you mentioned boards. At what point in med school do you take the boards? Is it at the very end or is it in the middle of the third year? I think it's more the third year because there's three steps to the boards. You know, well, you take part one. I think part one was made the second year and then part two was the third year. And then part three was in your residency. So it's in the middle of med school. So there are two parts you have to take, at least then in med school that you were to take. Yeah. And so the first one was in your second year or second, third year, I recall. I, that's yeah. my recollection. It probably was somewhere in there. So your second year uh, was you, more complex, as you mentioned. Um, the, this What you were actually doing on a day-to-day may not have been the most fun for you relative to classroom. Uh, and you had the anxiety of looking, uh, worrying about the first board mm-hmm. coming up at some point uh, right. soon. Right, exactly. Uh, I, I've talked to a handful of doctors. Which board was the toughest? Third. For me, is, third. Is it meant to be the toughest? Probably, probably yeah. that was after the third. You have to pass all three to then ultimately get. Um, um, I think you'd have to, for your license. You have to pass all three to get your license. I believe so. You have the degree in med from your med school, but you have to get your license of practice, and you have to pass all three stages to get your license. So it makes sense that the third would be the most challenging, right? So yeah. <laughs> it seems intentional. Yeah, exactly. Uh, at what point did you know you wanted to be a pediatrician? So uh, halfway through med school, that was an interesting time in my life. So I started med school, got through the second year of med school with the clear intention of doing orthopedic surgery. Mm. And then, as I mentioned, the rotation start third year. And the first month was like the VA hospital, which is like a month that seemed like six months to me. Anyway, but And then my second was pediatrics. And then, and then within a week of doing pediatrics, I just had this epiphany. I said, this is kind of this is literally what I want to do. I said, this is it. Just the idea of pediatric medicine is so dynamic to me. There's so much more to it than I thought and realized. It was just, you have know, people of all ages from newborn to 18 and everything in between. And I just, I mean, within days, I was like, I'm sold and never, never looked back from that. Well, so the notion of pediatrics, the reason there's a, a specialty in medicine is the human body is changing quite a bit over that time frame. Right. And, and I guess arguably it's changing beyond 18 and for some folks, but they go through puberty as, as uh, children, uh, their bodies are uh, growing and at times uh, wildly growing. And so I, I imagine that the variables for pediatrics are, um, there, there are a couple more variables that just aren't at play for other uh, disciplines. I mean, there, I mean, there are many more actually. I mean, it's, it's, not only just medically, how, you know, how a, you know, what would, for example, for a newborn or a child under three months, if they had a fever, let's say like a, just 100, which seems to us like low grade, which it is, but that's a whole different dynamic. That's much more serious for a child who's three months old versus even three years old. And a whole different dynamic of how you work them up and what you're concerned about and how you manage that and all that stuff. And so that's, I mean, that by itself, you have all these different considerations about what may be, how serious things may be or not. And then there's the social aspect, they have the development and they also, um, you know, uh, you know, their own development and socialization and there's safety issues and there's parenting issues. And I mean, there's so many avenues and aspects of it. Um, I don't know. That's just, I think it's the, it's so much more dynamic and things evolve um, so quickly, I would say to me than other, other specialties. And so that, that's one of the parts where I thought I found, I found it and still do find it fascinating. So I imagine, well, before I asked, 
the, the question I just popped into my head. Let me ask a different question. Were you in hospitals mostly? Were you in a practice most of the time? What, what kind of environment were you in uh, practicing pediatrics? So after residency, you know, obviously residency is hospital-based, pretty much 90%. Um, and so I was in a, basically in a practice, outpatient practice, for the most part, for 20-plus years or so. A little bit inpatient for, like, the newborn nursery, things like that. But mostly was um, large, multi-specialty practice, outpatient. Uh, I, I imagine you, you've seen some things that uh, you wouldn't wish on people uh, doing your job because uh, you, you're you're interacting with families and, and trying to address the, the needs of, of the, the patient. And to your point earlier, they could be really, really young and, and can't advocate for themselves. And you, you probably dealt with the extreme sadness. I, I don't want to ask you about those because I, I, I prefer to talk about uh, a story where like you, you thought it was pretty dire, but it ended up uh, working out and it's very memorable for you. Do you have a story or 20 like that? We're not going to go through all 20. Just give me, give me your. So, I actually have a story that's probably a little bit of both. Actually, his child, I mean, he was, um, he was maybe eight or nine at the time. And he was having all these infections that they just were not clearing up with different antibiotics and stronger antibiotics and so forth. And you get when you get that in some situations, somebody's having all these serious infections, you worry about some immune compromise, that kind of stuff. Some kids are born with it or things like that. Long story short, what we find out ultimately was this this preteen had HIV and had got it from a transfusion shortly after he was born. And it was at a window of time in the where the the, the blood supply was being screened, but not close enough. It was like it was like the perfect storm of him being exposed, unfortunately. So that's the sad part. However, over time, fortunately, he got diagnosed early and got the treatment he needed over time. The great part of the story is that he's now but in his 30s and has family of his own and as happy as can be and and is thriving and, and living the life he always, always wanted. And he, he and his mom were just, uh, and I see her periodically, and she's just still so thrilled. And so just being a part of somebody's life, both at a very, I mean, that's such a, I mean, that being a part of somebody's life and helping them as far as care for them from a doctor perspective. I mean, it's, it's kind of the, it's the most, I mean, vulnerable at one point, but it's also one of the more, more satisfying points. And I hadn't thought about that in years until you asked me that question. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine it's, uh, I mean, the, the, the emotional roller coaster for something yeah. like that, especially over a longer period of time, it sounds yeah. like for that particular case. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's fantastic. It ended like that because uh, at the beginning of that epidemic, yeah. Nobody knew which way was up, and right. people, the survival rate was, what virtually zero, right? Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and and not having the screening set up because of whatever time frame this happened, that's uh, mm -hmm. tragically unlucky. But it ended up not being a tragedy. It sounds exactly. like. Exactly. Yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I could handle the emotion. Was was it super emotional most of the time, or was it pretty straightforward most of the time? It was, I wouldn't say it was super emotional most of the time. I mean, there were points where emotions came in, but um, I think it's a part of, like, as, as physicians in general, there's, you know, for better or for worse, you, you, you have to, you have there's a compassion point, but you also had a, you need a, a sort of a barrier, some distance in a way, because if you get too close, you lose your objectivity and really are not serving them very well. You're, you're really just, you're making decisions based on your emotions and not what, is maybe medically sound, if you will. And so 
so there's a point where you, I mean, there's a balance of kind of getting close to people and connecting with them in a way that your emotion, you, you, obviously you need to be empathetic to be effective and be just human in general, but not too close. And so you kind of sort of modulate this fine line around the emotional piece of it. Yeah, but it, it's because you are empathetic and you do care about your patients that you you do your best to find that line every time out. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So t talk about uh, the team around you. Uh, in outpatient pediatrics, are there nurses, lab techs? I mean, what, what does that environment look like? So it's all of that. It's nurses, it's um, lab techs, it's uh, radiology techs, it is um, front staff who check in patients and things like that. Uh, people who do sort of those administrative insurance pieces. So um, it's um, so it's kind of it's a lot of different, a lot of different pieces to it. But mostly like clinical clinical staff. It's either you know nursing staff and back office staff in general. All right, I've always wanted. I ask every doctor I, I talk to uh, this question, so, but it's it's meant to be fun. The, the spirit of this question is meant to be fun. Why every time I've gone to the doctor and anybody that I've ever known goes to a doctor, why do we have to wait 20 to 45 minutes? Uh, why is that? Okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you two different, two different perspectives. So my dad was a doctor growing up and every time I'd go to his office, the pack, radio room was packed with people. I go every time, every time, and never get like, why in the world? You know, it's I thought it was the worst thing. Like, why in the world? It's a, it was so much like that. However, the way the dynamics were, or in medicine in large part, is because it's, it's, reimbursed based on more that you see and the more that you do. So sometimes that's kind of the name of the game for compensation and other things too, which is not, which is some ways people would think is kind of obviously backwards. You know, it's more about you should be more focused on what's right for the patient that turning more people through, but that's kind of how fee for service generally works or is, or is incentivized. And so that's unfortunate. So you basically end up scheduling more people, double booking X, Y, and Z, but you know, more than you need, you can see in a given window of time. And so the patient's one who suffers, right? So that's one piece of it. Then there's the other piece, which is more of a systems piece. And in the sense that there's, when you see me come into the office, say your appointment is 15 minutes and you only have one doctor to see, but you're, you know, invariably your appointment takes longer than 15 minutes, right? So what happens is what's supposed to be 15 minutes becomes 30 minutes. Then the next person starts 15 minutes behind and that becomes another 30 minutes. So there's this cascade of like, you're not, it's like supply demand. You're, 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 you're it's not like you're overbooking more too many people. It's like you're the time slot for your, uh, that you should allow to see patients is too small. And it's been this sort of antiquated way of 15, 20 minutes to allow for more patients. But so, um, so that's the other piece of it that is it, it's fixable, but it's not easy to fix. And the reason why I separate those two out is because um, I see that and it took me a long time to see the second part of that in a sense from a systems and process improvement perspective, because I got my uh, Lean Six Sigma black belt a few years back. And, mm -hmm. and part of that, you get to see kind of processes and how things are, you know, and kind of see it from a outside looking in or a broader view and say, you see how the system's design you see how it's sort of the inputs and it's there's a mismatch there, but it just sort of keeps cramming more people through the system that's not doesn't have the capacity. So it's more of an engineering perspective. Like you have to redesign your system in a way that both allows you to see the patients in the time you need to see them, but in a way that's still going to be able to, um, you know, be effective. And so so anyway, so that was a very long winded answer. That's probably no, that's a great answer. 
I, but, I love that answer. It's the best one I've heard yet. And I will. And so the marriage of those two concepts is I'm, I'm making this up, but I, I imagine it's something like 80 to 90% of visits take anywhere from 15 to 40 minutes. And so, Hey, because, so that's, that's data that you need to figure out the process part. Yeah. But the, your first point, uh, we're going to schedule everything for 15 minutes, right? Yep. Cause it could all be 15 minutes a day. We want to maximize the number of people that come in. Exactly. Yeah, it, uh, that makes a ton of sense to me, and th that actually will make me more patient the next time I go. <laughs> it's, it's uh, just say it's not intended to make people wait that long, and and obviously things that seem straightforward are not straightforward you know, always, and so sometimes even in the yeah. So, but it's not intended to make people wait or piss them off or disrespect their time. It's a system that people have to work in. So, yeah, no, I, I get it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. Uh, it also uh, another part of the world that functions that way seems to be the court system. <laughs> I can imagine that. Hey, we're going to have 12 people show up today. We might only see eight of you. Right. And we're going to put you in orders one through 12 and it's kind of random. And if you're, if you're number 10, sorry about that. Exactly. exactly. That, that's actually worse. <laughs> it is, right. All right. So uh, when you graduated medical school, uh, residency's next, and that's typically a year or two. Three. Three. It's another three. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Med school's so four. When you residency, you've done 10 years of post high school. <laughs> Actually 11. Yeah. So four years of med school and uh, sorry, I mean, I mean, after high school, it's four years of college, four years of med school, three years of residency. Yeah. I, I, for, I keep forgetting med school's four years. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm around more lawyers in my life than I am doctors. So yeah, it's 11. Yeah. It's almost as long as K through 12. <laughs> It's a good way to put anything about that, but yes, it is. That's like going K through 12 twice. It's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. All right, so when you finally got through all of that, yeah, and you knew there's a white robe ceremony where you figure out uh, where you're going to do res. I don't, there's some white robe thing that happens. Tell me about that. So it's cool, actually. It's called match day. And so what, the way it works is if you're, when you're in med school, like your third year, you start thinking about where you want, A, your specialty you want to go into, and B, where do you want to apply and do your training for residency, wherever that is. And so you, you know, send out applications, you know, and then then there's a process where if they're, if they're interested, then you'll get an interview and you go out and interview and all that stuff. But once that's all said and done, there's a point in time where that stops. And each med student has to sit in there in rank order of their program in preference that they want. And each residency program does the same thing for their students they interviewed and where those match. What's coming is is where you, you where where the best match is where you end up. So if it's one and one, then you end up there. But if you rank this program here at one and you're ten on their list, you might not get that. You may get the next closest thing. So it's kind of a, I mean, it's you have some control because you apply to certain places and how you interview. But then it's how the match sort of falls and the way it works. Everybody there's a day where everybody finds out in the same time. So it's big event. At the time, we had envelopes. People open up their envelope and you find out where you're going for the next three to five years of your life. And so it's, it's, it's exciting in some ways. So people get stressed out because sometimes people don't match, unfortunately, or not to where they wanted to go. And, but it's, it's, a, it's, yeah, that's how it, at least how it would work when I was in med school. I think it's pretty similar still. Do, uh, does everybody get a place to land? Not always. Oh, that's gotta be brutal, right? That's really, really tough. That's really tough. And then they have to, the whole process to kind of, what do you do? Like a plan B around that. So that's, that's, oh. I know, right? I mean, it's stressful already. And then that. Yeah, I mean, you've gone through eight years post high school at that point, right? 
exactly. Oh, yeah. oh my gosh. Isn't that rough? That's that I, I can't think of many things more brutal than that, man. Exactly. Uh, so where did you end up doing residency? At Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. Uh, is that does it go by Chola? It goes is by that... it goes by CHLA and so it's in, in it's in LA associated with USC Medical School. Okay. Yeah. So it's really, really, really great program. Uh, excellent program. It's one of the top five in the country, I think, for pediatrics. So. Was that your top choice? It was. It was between CHLA, Emory, and Children's National Medical Center in DC. That was my okay. top. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. How, how, did you enjoy LA or did you not have time to really enjoy LA? <laughs> That's a great point. The first year, I don't know anything about LA. It was because as an intern, you're just like, the time you have, you're sleep deprived. And so, it's, but so I, I got to, I, the first year I, I was miserable between being a, an intern and I think mean, the culture shock from Virginia to LA, you can imagine a bit different and you're kind of on your own and all that stuff and everything's so different and precarious in a way. But after that, actually, uh, fortunately I got so there's some, still my dearest friends who I met out there in LA who still live there and many of them. And so I got to know and have some really, really lifelong dear friends. And there are parts of LA that are good, you know, and actually better than people realize, but there are parts of LA that, you know, deserve its reputation as well. And so uh, after the second or third earthquake, I wasn't too sad to leave. <laughs> yeah, the, the thing that struck me, the, uh, the one time I really spent some time in LA, uh, you, you go from like a, a, an amazingly nice part of town and then next door, it's not nice at all. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just like you, you were getting whiplash as you're driving through LA. It that's very true. Especially like the Hollywood area for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. LA's, I mean, look, if, if you get to live somewhere, uh, before you really settle down, LA is not a bad place to live. That, that's a good place. Pre-settle down. I don't know that I'd ever want to settle down there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it seems to be uh, California, it seems like a lot of Californians are moving to places like Texas and Florida these days, which is just a weird, I didn't think I would live long enough to see something like that. <laughs> right. Exactly. Cool. All right. So how'd you end up in uh, Atlanta? So I, 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 I had a, after residency, I had one or two um, uh, jobs there, what's called locums jobs. You're kind of like part-time uh, trying to figure out where I wanted to go. I knew I didn't want to stay in LA, but didn't know where. And so I was just looking at different places, Richmond, I mean, Virginia, Atlanta, DC. And then I found out there's a position open uh, here in Atlanta. And I talked to the, uh, the recruiter and so forth. And then a few months later, I was moving here. And that was January of 2001 where I landed here. And so and here I am still. Yeah, and is what, what is it about Atlanta that, that's kept you there? Um, I mean, some of it was the job. Some of it's just the city. You know, it was interesting that even though they had already had the Olympics, the city, the the inner uh, downtown and all that stuff wasn't as developed as I thought it would have been, especially come from Los Angeles. However, it's grown so much more, both in you know expansion, but also the development of new things has been has been just astounding. So that's really exciting and interesting. Even if we don't go out very much still. But it's still uh, the, the the growth of it has been really, really exciting. It's It's been growing the entire time you've lived there, right? Completely. I mean, yes, very. I mean, still to, still is, which is shocking. But yeah. Yeah. Is there still a distinction, uh, inner loop and outer loop kind of thing? For yeah. No, yeah. Right. And you're, out, you're, you're living outer loop or inner loop? Uh, no, I'm ITP. Let's be clear. It's <laughs> 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 For anybody who heard this, like ITP. So. 
anyway, some people, yeah, I'm really, some people, it matters. It really does matter. It's more of a joke than anything, but yeah, I'm inside the perimeter. So, <laughs> so uh, like near Buckhead, that kind of area? So not far. Yeah. So we're kind of like the Northeast part of Metro Atlanta and Buckhead's kind of a little bit, maybe eight, 10 miles West. Oh, okay. Yeah. So near Emory? Not too far. Yeah. A little North of Emory. Yeah. So very close to Emory in that area. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. you can land pretty well. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I worked there for five years, never moved there. I just flew there every week for yeah. five years. So if, if you're familiar, the Chambly Tucker area is where, if that's familiar to you, that's kind of where we where Yeah. We're it's a great part of the city. Yeah. yeah. yeah and we've been awesome. 16 years and it's really, we just love it. Yeah. Yeah. There are lots of really uh, fun, like positive vibe pockets of Atlanta. Yeah. A ton of them. They're everywhere. They are. They are. That's really, really good. We're enjoying and, it. Atlanta, to your point, is, uh, I mean, I, it's still expanding. It seems to just be growing this giant circle that just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Exactly. And even in the city where you think nothing else can be built, <laughs> there you go. That's yeah, they figured it out. They figured it out, right. So it sounds like you don't move around the city a ton, but uh, traffic is unbelievably bad in Atlanta. It's terrible. It's terrible. Yeah. There's no two ways around it. I mean, is it because, like, a lot of people from north of Atlanta would say it's because people don't don't know how to drive in Atlanta. I I don't think that's the case. I think the design of the roads and the highway system there is just brutal. You're absolutely right. I think that the, the, as we talk about the growth and all that stuff, the, the the roadway system and the infrastructure for that has not grown nearly enough. So it's just more and more congestion without the right um, transportation system. So. All right. So you're not a pediatrician technically anymore. So what are you doing these days? That's correct. So I'm a pediatrician, always pediatrician, board certified. I, I didn't mean to offend you. I'm not offended, no, but I mean, so, but um, I'm not seeing patients anymore. So recently I did, I did step away from patient care altogether. And so I, I just stepped into, um, now I work for a, a health insurance company. I'm the chief medical officer for, for that insurance company here in Georgia. And so what's the day-to-day -day look like, or is it still fairly new and you're still figuring that out? It's, it's still, it's still fairly new, but it's busy in a sense that there's so many, I guess, given the, I guess, scope of my role, there's there's so much to learn, not only in, I guess, my area of accountability as far as understanding the nuts and bolts of it, but the expansiveness and how it interacts with the other parts of the organization, either what parts you need to know about or weigh in on or people need to, you know, have your perspective on or any of those things. So I think it's just the, it's still um, a wide variety of, there's some things that are staples to it, if you will, but it's still a wide variety of different things most days of the week, which is there are pluses and minuses to it. It just depends on if it's a fire you're trying to put out or if it's something just more interesting you want to learn about. But um, it's, um, I'm learning, I mean, it's funny, as, as, as far as in medicine in general, you know, we go into medical school about the patient care part. And even though patient care is, like, I think, one of the, if not the most critical essential piece of cars as far as healthcare, it's only a small part of it. And we don't know about the business of medicine and the insurance parts. And all the other stuff which matter too and how they and we kind of working in a system that we don't we're kind of beholden to as far as how it works and how it's dynamics and so where i am now is away from patient care but it's in that understanding how the system works in that sense and bringing a clinical perspective to help make it better or make it work more collaboratively with physicians versus sort of adversarially and or hopefully address pain points that patients have or people have with health insurance or things like that and make that better. I, that's my, my ideal. <laughs> One of the reasons why I made that direction, but it's more than anything, it's an opportunity to, I think in any field to grow and learn more and be more stimulated mentally and, 
and frankly happier overall. And I, as busy as I am and feel a bit of a fish out of water at times, um, I, I, I'm happiest I've been in a long time. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's, I, I didn't expect you to say that. Are you are you pulling more on the lean Six Sigma sort of thing or more on the medical stuff or, or pretty good portion of both? Right now, it's more the medical and just kind of understanding that I think the the nuts and bolts of the work, I think. But as I get to know more and meet more people and kind of see different connections, then you can see where things, uh, maybe the lean Six Sigma, you see where things aren't as connected as they could be and how they could be more inclusive or more connected or more streamlined or yeah, where there's breakdowns in the system, it's too many handoffs. And that's where the Lean Six Sigma piece can come into play. I just have to understand the, the, the inner workings of the organization first, which takes some time, and then kind of bring that in sort of gradually. Or it's, almost, it's almost like you're solving uh, multiple puzzles that are intertwined. Um, and I, I think that's that's the good news, right? That, right. And the fact that you're in whatever aspects you're enjoying it sounds like you've got overall enjoyment from it and that's uh i'm, I'm happy for you man uh, yes i am very much so yeah yeah very cool all right i've got a uh, oddball question that we ask most of our guests you're a talk show host one night only one day only whatever time of day it happens you get to choose what time of day it happens you get to pick your guest your guest uh one female one male one musical group or musical act it can be a soloist. Uh, and if you're into stand-up comedy, you can give me, uh, or you can have a stand-up comedian. Uh, these people can be alive or dead. They okay. can be known to you, famous, not famous. Uh, your show can be thought-provoking, fun, entertaining, whatever you want it to be. Who are your three or four guests? Huh. Uh, revealing about your personality. So I think the male, I would say Coach K, in the sense that, I mean, that's kind of person, as we talked before, you, you just you want to pick his brain or just kind of every time he opens his mouth to me, you're like, just it's just what he's accomplished and what he you know, experienced is so fascinating. You'd love to just, uh, you know, just let him talk freely, you know, and see what you learn or experience. So I think that would be one. Um, the um, the female would be actually, <laughs> I'm laughing because my husband hears this, he laugh. Uh, I understand why. Steffi Graff. And it's not just the tennis angle. I mean, that's a big part because I think she's absolutely just beyond by, I mean, just beyond words as far as her talent or skill. However, what fascinates me the most beyond that is that when she played, I mean, she was kind of her own person. She wasn't, I mean, she was all, she was no nonsense basically. And which, and it was a business to her, which is in fact it was. And, and when she left the game, she just left on her. It was like one day she was like, I'm done. She just knew it was time to move on to something else. And she was a big fan fear. She could have been. She's like, next thing you know, like, where'd she go? She's like, oh. and and since then, she's doing her own thing and not kind of not the Steffi Graf, you know, big celebrity person. She's doing her life in a way that she wants to under the radar. It's just the, there's a there's a self-awareness and a confidence to that, how she approaches those things to me. That is always fascinating to me. Um, and integrity in some ways. And so I just, you know, I mean, just being a huge fan, but also just kind of under you know, hearing from her, like how that, how you make those transitions in such a public way um, and not looking back and not being apologetic about it. Um, and then. Well, before you go on from Stephanie, uh, Stephanie and Andre Agassi are still married to this day, which is, yeah. I mean, they're both uber famous people, especially back in the day. Right. And how they are still together is uh, unbelievable to me. But I think one of the ways they've done that, you know, because they are still famous, right? Mm -hmm. Especially for people of uh, a certain age and older. I, I think when they 
they do pop up their heads and they use their fame. What I've heard is it's almost always for charitable yep. endeavors. Yep, absolutely. So they're they're they they're not popping their heads up uh, to say, "Hey, look at me," and, and get that adoration. They're like, "Hey, I'm going to do this. I, my name can help a lot of people out here, so I'm going to use my name to do that." Exactly right. Exactly right. Cool. All right, musical group or comedian or or both. Um, uh, now he's my favorite artist, but Garth Brooks. Okay. <laughs> I mean, he's insanely talented, right? Again, someone who's so talented, but um, I know sometimes, you know, he's got this Garth Brooks radio. I don't know if you listen to it on Salad Radio, but it's interesting because periodically he'll be on there and with his wife, Trisha Yearwood, something about his, he seems very thoughtful and very um, just aware, if you will. And just, I don't know, something about him, but I think not only his talent and skill, but there's something about, um, just be, it seems just very relatable. And also somebody who could be so famous, so, so insanely talented, but also be sort of the guy next door in some ways is fascinating to me. And so, so I think people who kind of are very talented and successful and are aware of it, but aren't beholden to it and can still be themselves and be kind of right in that sweet spot is just, I think, really some of the most impressive things to me. So. Yeah, rel relatable is a, a fantastic word with him. And I, I, I think this story is accurate. He got out of music for a while to help raise his kids. I think so. I think so. That's See, that's even... That by itself tells you all you need to know, right? <laughs> yeah, very relatable. He's the kind of guy that you wouldn't mind having a beer with. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you would interview him and he would perform, it sounds like. That'd be great. Exactly. That would be ideal, right? <laughs> okay. I'm, hey, are you in a stand-up, by the way? A little bit. A little bit, yeah. Do we give you a comedian, I guess? I, don't know. I mean, if you don't have to have one, this is your show. Not really. Not really. I mean, I, I, I'm not into it, I would say. I mean, there are people I find funny, but not like, oh, I got to yeah. go see that show. Yeah, yeah don't don't have a comedian if it's not part of uh, what you want to do for your your one made-up show on this podcast. <laughs> no, I'll pass on that. Thanks. But, but uh, I mean, i definitely check out your show. Okay. Oh, cool. That's I good. think I'd be most fascinated by Steffi Graf out of those yeah. three. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, Coach K says some really wise things every time he opens his mouth. Right. Uh, Garth Brooks is the kind of guy I wouldn't mind like grilling some hamburgers with and uh, shooting the breeze. But Steffi right. seems—I mean, they're all rare. They're, they've all achieved rare things in their lives. But right. Steffi, I'm, I think I'm most fascinated by Steffi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. All right, let's let's end with uh, you telling me about your husband, how you guys met, and the, the story. Uh, <laughs> my husband's is Michael, Michael Fellin, uh, just a fast, fantastic person and just a sweetheart, big heart, very funny and makes me laugh every day. Um, so we met, uh, we've been together 18 years, we've been married four years and uh, we met, we, we were actually met through um, a mutual friend, actually, one of our dearest friends. We I met Ke his name is Kevin. He unfortunately passed away a few years back, two years back. But met through Kevin, and he knew Kevin already. And then I played tennis with Kevin when I first moved to Atlanta. So we met through him, and we were actually um, uh, we were actually friends only for about a, maybe two years or so. And then um, circumstances changed in our respective lives, and then we ended up um, realizing we, you know wanted to spend more time together and uh, kind of blossomed from there. And uh, he, he's just, uh, he, he's a riot. So uh, yeah, he grew up in Tennessee and it's a great family. And so, yeah, we were, we living our, we've been in our house together for 16 years and have a beautiful uh, border collie that makes us laugh as well. 
So it sounds like there's a lot of laughter in the home and you're obviously very compatible because you've been together for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. A lot yeah. Of- so I, when you and I spoke a few weeks ago, I said only married for four. And I, I was asking this out of complete ignorance. I'm like, why didn't you get married sooner? And <laughs> it was just, just as the laws evolve. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I'm glad the laws have evolved to where they are. Thank you. Glad to hear that. Thank you. Did it change your relationship getting married or was it basically this pretty much the same? I, I would say it did. I mean, I mean, in a small way, and in a small way, it was, it was, it changed it more for the better than I expected it to, you know, mm-hmm. for, there was a point in time where even it wasn't legal, I, you know, I thought it was like, oh, this is a piece of paper, legal document, whatever, you know, it doesn't really reflect how you feel about each other. But I think the, the formality of it, for lack of a better term, or the made 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 so different. At least for me, and I think for him as well. Um, so yeah, it's different, and I yeah, and I'm pleasantly surprised that it is. It brings depth to the relationship. I think so. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's cool. David, well, I, I appreciate you doing this, man. I think I said an hour to an hour and 15 minutes. We're almost at an hour 13. Uh, you, you are as nice and as pleasant as I remember you. you. You've accomplished things that apparently I gave up on when I was 19 years old. Uh, I, I wish you had kept playing tennis. Though. You played a year at Duke, right? And then the, if you wanted to be a doctor, you had to like choose one, right? Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. Pre-med just clearly was not going to allow for anything outside of that. So. Did you have dreams of uh, being a pro tennis player? You know, I did. I, it was unreasonable dreams. You know, it really was. But I mean, it would have been a totally the pie in the sky fantasy. Uh, you know, other career if I could do that, that would be ideal. But um, you know, it's it's good good to play as a as a hobby. Well, I mean, my recollection is you were fantastic at it. <laughs> you never know, man. You could have been the guy. Ah, uh, well, that's all right. That's we'll we'll never know. It's some well, other uh, universe, maybe. That's right. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.